Father's Day. Here we are at Father's Day. And of course, you know, I wanted to talk about fathers this morning, uh, appropriately, and father figures, but we're going to do it in our own kind of peculiar way because that's what we do here. And the uh, last couple of weeks we've been talking about oscillation. Okay, oscillation and fathers. How is he going to put those two together? Um, and what we mean by oscillation, for those of you who maybe you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, is that life continues to swing, you know, it's seemingly from one pole to another. So it's, it's constantly moving between comedy and tragedy, if you will, you know, between pleasure and pain and order and chaos and, and work and play and all those things. And we have to try to, to, to keep up with that, with the swinging of the pendulum. We talked about how that was kind of an up and down feeling. You know, some moments are really pleasurable and some are really painful. And it just keeps going throughout life. No matter how evolved we think we are, we're not immune to that. But there's also an interior. That one kind of comes from outside, from events and things that happen to us. But there's an interior oscillation, too, that's more experienced side to side. And these are the things that we think about. These, this is the, you know, the, the swing between knowledge and wisdom, let's say, between the spiritual and the physical, and how we feel about what is spiritual and what is physical as we move back and forth between those poles, between love and fear and serenity and risk, security and risk. Boy, there's a big one. Are we going to chase security? Are we going to allow risk in our lives? Because risk is the only way that we'll find love. But fear drives us into security. You know, between oneness, the feeling of connection and separation, all these are constantly moving in our lives, kind of in various ways. And we're trying to navigate through. Last week we talked about that middle way, navigating between those poles, between those things that want to pull us off. So life is always swinging between heaven and earth, if you will, between the oneness and the separation. And so life lived really well, you know, is not lived at those poles. It's always going to be lived in the middle, that middle spot. In a place, if our life is lived well, where we're not trying to resolve everything. We're just going to let it be. Not trying to resolve, and not even trying to freeze the pendulum at the sweet spot. How much of us are trying to do that? But just to let it swing, to realize that the perfect place is not freezing a perfect moment, but the perfect place is just being engaged in every point along the path of that oscillation, the path of that swing, allowing it to move freely, allowing life to move freely, but engaging in every moment. That's going to be a life lived well. And that's going to feel a lot different than what we've been talking about, or what we've been living, I should say. These realities that we talk about are going to realize in this perfect moment that's always changing, embracing all of these paradoxes, all these seeming opposites. And so this morning, if we're going to talk about father, it's almost impossible to talk about father if we don't also talk about mother, right? These are the poles. This is part of that swing that we're always talking about. We can't talk about male without talking about female. We can't talk about the masculine without talking about the feminine. And especially when we're talking about God, it's going to be a perfect balance between all of those seeming opposites. Now, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, our, our modern culture, in our modern culture, especially in the last 20 years or so, it seems that men have been becoming more and more in touch with their feminine sides, 
Would you say that's true? I don't know. Maybe, yeah, kind of. In, way back in 1994, that was a very good year. That was the year Marion and I were married. Way back in 1994, the term metrosexual was coined. You remember that one? Uh, I don't know if we talk about that so much anymore, but that was a big deal back in the early 90s. And metrosexual is what's called a portmanteau. It's, a, it's the, you know, just the joining of two separate words. In this case, metropolis and sexual. The idea was, and metropolis itself, this is for free. I'm, just, I'm digressing now, but I think it's so cool. Metropolis is also a portmanteau. It's, it's a, a combination of meter, which is Greek for mother, and polis, which is Greek for city. And so metropolis is literally the mother city. It's a city around which all the other hub communities connect and shelter under. So metropolis already has the idea of mother in it, of the feminine in it. And so metrosexual is the idea of, and let's see if I can get this, it's a man with a highly disposable income, living or working within easy reach of a metropolis, who is especially meticulous about his grooming and appearance, typically spending a significant amount of time and money on shopping as part of all of this. You know, part of this, I'm sure, was driven by the advertising agencies, you know, way back when trying to get make sure it's weird as I'm doing this research like I do. You know, the Internet's a dangerous thing. You end up all over the place. And uh, these stats hit me. That was really interesting. In 1985, you know, just however long ago that is, only 25 percent of men's clothing was purchased by the men themselves. Seventy five percent was purchased by women in their lives for them. Isn't that crazy? In 1998, that number was up to 52%, and in 2004, all the way to 69%. Now, that was 14 years ago, so where is it now? So men more and more are buying their own clothes, thank you very much, typically and most likely because men are much more involved in their own appearance, you know, except in our house, where Marion still buys a lot of my clothes. So is this headed in the right direction? Is this giving us, you know, the balance that we're looking for? Some of you guys out there may be wondering, are you metrosexuals? And so I'm going to answer that question for you because I have the top ten signs that you might be a metrosexual. Are you ready for this? I've decided that we just have to laugh more. I've decided we have to follow Jesus and we have to laugh more. So those are two things. Okay, number ten of the top ten signs that you might be a metrosexual. You can French braid a woman's hair faster than you can change a flat tire. Number nine, you'd rather get a manicure than go bowling. Okay, that wasn't so great. Number eight, you spent more time in the men's fragrance department at Macy's than in the aisles of Home Depot. During the Super Bowl, you enjoy the commercials more than the actual game. Number six, you have, wor- <laughs> Number six, you have used the word exfoliate in a sentence. Five, you spend more money on shaving products than the average woman spends on hair care. Number four, you shop regularly at Bed Bath & Beyond, but have never made a purchase at the AutoZone. Number three, you get upset if someone uses your hair gel. Number two, your Christmas wish list includes a state-of-the-art nose hair trimmer. And the number one sign that you might be a metrosexual, you believe narcissism is a lifestyle and not a character flaw. Okay, but I digressed again, didn't I? This is not obviously what the ancient Hebrews had in mind when they were talking about the balance between mother and father, the balance between man and woman, the balance between masculine and feminine. Of course, it has nothing to do with shopping. 
On Mother's Day, we talked about this a little bit. We talked about the Hebrew roles between mother and father. We talked about the fact that it's coded right into their language. The word ab, which is two letters, aleph and bet in, in, uh, in the Hebrew alphabet, literally means strong house. And so the father was understood as the one who gave the strength to the house, kind of like the pole that holds up the tent itself. He was the the leader of the clan, because make no mistake, Hebrew families were clans, especially the ancient ones. And he was the he was the king, he was the the executioner, the jury, the judge, he was the head of the army, which was of course all the, the men, the brothers. He was everything that had to do with administration and the execution of the plan, everything that would keep the family strong, bring in the, the resources and the wealth that it needed. On the other hand, M mother Aleph Mem literally means strong water. Strong water. All right? You have to go into their culture a little bit and realize that when they would tan their hides in big pats, uh, vats of boiling water, the, the, this thick, sticky substance that would rise to the top, they would skim off and literally use as glue, as adhesive in, in their day-to-day lives. And so the woman, the mother, was seen as the glue that held the family together. That was the strong water. So you have the strong house focused on accomplishment, focused exteriorly, focused out there to make the accomplishments that needed to be made and the outcomes that needed to be made in order for the family to remain strong. But here you have mother on the inside, interiorly, binding the family together, tending to relationships. So whereas the masculine, whereas the father is dealing with the kingship, he's dealing with accomplishment, in dealing with knowledge, as in understanding cognitive knowledge, right? And all those other administrative tasks. Here's a mother symbolizing and dealing with wisdom. She's the lover. Mercy, compassion, intimacy, connection. And we can see, obviously, the picture has to include both. In any kind of healthy relationship, in any kind of healthy family, in any kind of group at all, we need the administration. We need the justice. But without the mercy and compassion, without the binding together relationship, what have we got? And this was the genius of the language of the Jews, coded right into the letters themselves that made the roots and the words, is this understanding of the roles and how the completion comes between both. It's not an either-or proposition. This is a both-and. And as with all aspects of life, really, if you think about it, our way through life is not going to be either-or. The truth is not going to be at the extremes. It's going to be when we pull those extremes into this, this vibrant, pass- passionate center. We sometimes think of the middle as being milk toast, and the middle as being bland. It's anything but. If it is approached this way, it has to be this way. Now, when it comes to God, of course, Ab, father, has far outshadowed M and mother. And to be fair, the scriptures never call God M, never call God mother. And so we as literalists have taken that, especially all these millennia later, and said, okay, we're going to refer to God as Father, and we understand God as Father and masculine, and we understand all those characteristics of masculinity as being God's main nature and character points. And we understand God as a lover too, but really when it comes down to it, where is the emphasis placed in our culture? 
And yet Hebrew scripture, even though it doesn't directly call God mother, it is referring to God in that role constantly. On Mother's Day, we talked about the Proverbs that anthropomorphize God as, as a woman, as female, as wisdom. But there are all these other passages, and we read some of them then, about the way God cared for his people, cared for the nation of Israel, cared for individuals. And all those images of a mother cradling and, and, and providing for her children is all right there. And so it's all there. It's just not hitting the nail on the head. And so we kind of miss it, I think, is what comes down to. Now, how do we deal with this? How do we bring these two together? How are we supposed to understand how we approach God? We know he's supposed to be balanced, but it's hard for us, both culturally, intellectually, and to justify scripturally. But here comes Jesus to the rescue. And he has an ingenious solution. And the solution is Abba. Now, Abba is the word that children use to refer to their fathers. It could literally mean beloved, but it was the familiar form, the intimate form of Abba, father, and could literally be translated as daddy as well. And so Jesus takes this term of intimacy, familiarity, and endearment and applies it to Father God, who had been understood in Jewish culture as the king of the universe. Jews today still refer to God as the king of the universe, this creator of all things. And in that culture where the king is in a rarefied atmosphere apart from the the rank and file, God was in that place. Here comes Jesus with this revolutionary way of referring to his father as daddy, as Abba. How did he get there? Why was that important for him to use that particular word? Jesus had gotten close enough to his father to literally see his face and in so doing, revealed to himself who he was. And I know when I say things like this, it's difficult for people, um, for many of us, because we have been taught that Jesus was God from birth and knew who he was, and, and because of the, the way that the infancy narratives and everything are, are written, it's easy to understand why. And so this sounds jarring that Jesus had to get close enough to his father in order to see his face to understand what he was about, that he then tried to convey to communicate as best he could with the words he had at his disposal. But if you really look at the scriptures, that's exactly what you see in Jesus' life. Jesus struggled as a human being, because the scriptures tell us Jesus was fully human. He struggled. That 40 days in the wilderness preceded by how many years at home, feeling pulled to something different, but trying to be faithful to his mother and to his family and to the career and to the family business and to make sure they had what they needed with this constant pull on his life, this vocation. Struggling with that. Working through that. Studying the scriptures. Studying the ways of his people knowing how to read and write the scriptures and so on and so forth. And then finally it breaks through and he has to go and become baptized. And then he has to go into the wilderness. And it's in that time where he is driven to exhaustion, struggling, wrestling with all that it means to be a human being, trying to approach the face of his father, that he breaks through and he realizes who he is in the face of his father. And that's when he comes back to his community to try to teach, to try to convey. But he had to wrestle with this. And we see in the shape of Jesus' life the struggle that goes on, the wrestling that goes on. 
and how it is that we need to be so desirous of seeing our Father's face, knowing what he's really about, that we will go through what it's going to take to shed the things that we think we know, to let go of the things that are going to block us over and over. And it's not just Jesus. I want to talk about three, as quickly as possible, three figures in Scripture that have the same shape to their life. And it can instruct us what it looks like if we're going to follow after, if we're going to do this thing, this live this way of Jesus that he is trying to teach us. And the first one is Jacob. Y'all know Jacob? Yeah, Jacob is the twin son of, of Isaac and his brother Esau, and he came out, Esau came out first, but Jacob was holding on to his heel on the way out. And, and uh, his name, Yaakob in, in Hebrew, and that we translate as Jacob, literally means heel catcher. You know, It means supplanter. It means schemer and trickster. That's who Jacob was. And his entire life, he's a schemer. His entire life, he's trying to pull one over and trying to get what he needs, even if it comes out of the hide of somebody else. He steals his brother's birthright. I don't know if you remember the story, but he tricks his blind father into thinking that he's Esau and gets the birthright. Of course, Esau sort of gave it away at the same time. But we have this mentality By doing that, he created a clan war, kind of a civil war within the clan of his father. Esau on one side, he on the other. And Esau had all the strength and had the men behind him. Esau was the man's man and the hunter. Jacob was more of the metrosexual, if you really want to know the truth. He he was the inside guy. He cooked like his mother cooked and so on and so forth. Had soft, smooth skin as opposed to Esau. That's interesting the way that worked out. I hadn't thought about that. So he's the one who's got to get out of Dodge because Esau's on the warpath. And so he flees up to what is now present-day Turkey, to Haran, and to his uh, uncle, Laban, and uh, and lives there for 20 years, ends up marrying Rachel and, and, uh, and Leah, and has this life there. But he is also being pulled at the same time back to his father's house. He knows he needs to go back. And the Bible doesn't give us the details, but 20 years... And then finally, it just breaks through, and he's got to go. And he loads up the truck, and he moves to Beverly, and he goes down south. And then all the time, he's processing, he's scheming. How am I going to deal with Esau? Because I really done him wrong, and this is going to be a fight. When he gets to the river Yabok, this little creek, it's kind of a dividing line between the, the northern territories and where his brother lives. That's where he puts his plan into motion. And he splits his tribe into two halves and his reasoning is if he attacks one the other can still get through and survive he splits his family in in, in the same way he sends a messenger over to let Esau know he's coming and then he immediately follows that with tons of gifts you know hundreds of head of livestock and other gifts and resources to try to butter him up and he's planning this whole thing out and that's where we can pick up here at Genesis 32 starting at verse 22 now he Jacob, arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Yabok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw, when the man saw that he had not prevailed against him, against Jacob, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then he said, this is uh, the man, let me go for the dawn is breaking. 
But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So here's Jacob, sends everybody across at, at, at dusk, and then spends the whole night alone on the north side of the river. And then he wrestles with this man. And you understand that in Hebrew idioms, a man, an angel, and a God could be interchangeable parts. So this man that he's wrestling with, we find out later, is God himself. But Jacob had been wrestling for 20 years. This is the culmination of that wrestling. This is the breakthrough moment that is recorded in Scripture. All that other stuff that led up is left to our imagination, up to us to read between the lines. So he said to him, this is the man saying to Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. So what's going on here? 20-year journey, right? 20-year wrestling for Jacob. Comes to this moment here at the Yobok. He's at the end of himself. He is done all the scheming he can possibly do, and there is nothing left that he can control. All of his family, everything he has is on the other side of the river at Esau's mercy. And then here's this man who wrestles with him to the point where he can no longer stand. He can't even stand up anymore. He's done. He's toast. He's clinging on to the man. He's holding on. He's vulnerable at this point. And he won't let go without getting the blessing won't getting that sense of security that he needs. This is his last attempt at having some kind of control, right? One last attempt is to ask him his name. Now, to understand in, in Hebrew culture, to name something is to show your dominion over it. Adam gets to name all the animals in the garden, which is a Jewish way of saying he had dominion over the animals. Parents could name their children. That's why Jews never spoke the name of God, because to speak the name of God was to show dominion over God. For Jacob to be asking this name is for one last attempt at the understanding, the intellectual understanding that he needed to have a sense of some kind of security, some kind of control. He was going into the unknown when he crossed that river. But notice how he's denied that. And the question is perfect. Why do you ask my name? That introspective question cuts right to the heart of it. Jacob has to confront his own motives. Why do I need to know this name? Why do I? Because he's still scheming. And then he finally breaks through. And he just lays it all down. It's okay. Then he gets his blessing. And then he names the place Peniel, which literally means God's face in Hebrew, because he has finally seen God face to face. Look at the shape of that. Think of it in conjunction with the shape of Jesus' life. And now think about Moses and the shape of his life. Moses' life is divided into three sets of 40. He was 120 when he died, traditionally. First set of 40 was as a prince of Egypt. The second set of 40 was as a shepherd under Jethro in the Midian. And it was in that 40 years, again, that number, that, that time of trial and testing into a, into a rebirth, where Moses develops his shepherd consciousness, as I like to call it. That attention to detail, that silence, that ability to be completely at one with the environment. Think about him, weeks and months on end, with nothing but his flocks, 
in the loneliest of, of wilderness. Able to recognize a bush that is burning and not being consumed and not just walk on by. And when he moves to that bush to see what's happening and he understands that he's standing on holy ground, what does he do? He argues with God, who's speaking to him from the bush. He's still struggling. He's still wrestling with it. And his entire next and third and final set of 40, which is leading the people of Israel to the promised land, is one of almost constant contention, right? Constant controversy between him and God and between him and the people. There's always that wrestling and that struggling, trying to come through. And yet, Moses is described as God's friend, who gets to speak to him face to face. Take a look at Exodus 33, starting at verse 8. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, All the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. So here's Moses. It seems like a contradiction because in the next passage, we're going to hear that no one can look at God's face and live. Remember that? So what is it? What the heck? Here we are between the horns of the dilemma again. Here we are between the poles. Can you talk to God face to face? Or if you see his face, are you struck dead? Which is it? Is there a contradiction here? And there's really not. But you have to understand how the Hebrews communicate idiomatically. They're talking about two different things here. And this gets right to the point of what we're talking about. Two different aspects of God. Moses knew God face to face in his relationship with him in his connection with him. That kind of intimacy, that kind of connection. In other words, you could say, Moses knew God as mother, as M, or even Ima, as mommy. He knew him that way, as a friend knows a friend, to converse, to argue, to plan, to work things out in real time. That's how he knew God. But he wants more here in the next passage. He knew him face to face, But nobody can see God fully intellectually to understand God, to know all the workings of God, to see the fullness of the Godhead. That's just not possible for anyone here living and breathing on this earth. We can't do it. We're talking about two different things here. Moses experiences Ab as a loving mother in the next section. Take a look at Exodus 33, 18 to 23. This is where Moses is asking for more. Just like Jacob asked for the name, Moses is asking for something to really hang his hat on so he doesn't have to keep going through all of this oscillation. Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, 
but my face shall not be seen. Aren't that beautiful? Here's Moses asking for something that he cannot have as a man. He cannot see the fullness of God. He can't intellectually understand. And yet here is father acting just like mother, taking the child, carefully placing in the cleft of the rock in this sheltered place and holding the hand over them to shelter this child as this all passes by and then releasing it afterwards. This is this beautiful image of God as loving mother And Moses is left to figure it out, to understand. He can have the intimacy with God, the face-to-face encounter with God at that relational point, as long as he is willing to embrace the incomprehension at the same time, to embrace the unknowing at the same time. All the intimacy in the world, but without the intellectual comprehension that we think is going to give us the sense of security. We think the clarity is going to give us the ability to be able to move boldly through life. And it's not so. We can't have it anyway. But it's really the trust that is going on here that's really at issue. And finally, Philip in the New Testament, same motif, same thing going on. Philip is wrestling as well. Jesus has told them all that he's leaving and they're freaking out. And Philip at John 14, verse 8, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Philip wants clarity. He wants to understand. He wants to see how things work so he can feel better about himself, and he can feel better about this unknown they're about to pass into. But it doesn't work that way. In Jesus, in the relationship that he's had with Jesus all those years up to that point, he has already seen everything he needs to know. There's nothing else he needs because he understands relationally who Jesus is, how he can trust him, how things with Jesus always work out okay for them. And that's all he needs to know about the Father because he's not going to get any more specific information in that direction, but he can get more and more at the point of father, of point of mother God, as opposed to father God. That's how the two things can be embraced. And of course, Philip continues to struggle all the way to Pentecost when he has his breakthrough and realizes how this works, how this can actually be done. Jesus struggled. He wrestled in his own life as well, as we've talked about to see his father's face. And in his father's face, he found his own identity. He could come back and say what he said at John 14. I and the father are one. You don't need to see the father. This right here is everything that you can ever know in this life about my father. If we are up to the task, if we will enter into the wrestling ourselves, it's really a search for ourselves. In the search for the Father is the search for ourself. It's the search for our own identity, which can't be known apart from who this ultimate reality is, who this author of everything actually is. 
When we have experienced God in day-to-day relationship as mother long enough to know who he really is and how he loves and how we are cared for, then we will have the trust to be able to embrace the unknowing on Father God's side. That's the way this works. And we've seen this beautifully played through the shape of the journey drawn for us in enough detail just in these four figures in Scripture. This is what we're after. Knowing who our Father really is, we need to see His face intimately enough to know who we are and what this life is all about. And what is that nature of God? What is it that we're going to find when we finally get face-to-face, Peniel, with God, with Father? Jesus tells us in the prodigal son, again, so beautifully, that idea of prodigal, which means lavish or extravagant, wastefully spendful, spendthrift, if you will. You know, It's really not the prodigal son that's at the issue. It's the prodigal father. The father is the lavish one, the extravagant one. He's the one who spares no expense when his son illegitimately asks him for the wealth. He lavishes him with it. And he waits for him day by day by day until he returns. And the moment he sees him crest that hill onto his property, he runs to him and lavishly covers him with kisses, covers him with his embrace, and then spares no expense to throw the party. That's who our God is. A lavish lover. This extravagant parent. And when we start to experience that, in our daily lives, then we will begin to understand that we are the children of lavishness. We are the children of extravagance. We are the expression of that exuberance that just can't be contained because that's who our Father is. That's who Jesus showed himself to be. Lavish, extravagant, no holds barred immersed so firmly in each moment that you couldn't miss it. You were drawn in. If we're willing to do this wrestling, to see God's face, what's the wrestling going to look like? Well, it's going to look like Jacob living for 20 years with his uncle. It's going to look like Moses just leading his sheep for 40 years and leading his people for another 40 years. It's going to look like Philip working his way from the crucifixion through to Pentecost, however long that took, just living his life, continuing to show up to the things that he always said he believed when Jesus was physically present and had to somehow continue to live now that he wasn't anymore. This is what it looks like. It just looks like living our lives. But living with intention, living with awareness, living with the kind of presence that allows us to see the connection of all of these things that at first glance look completely disconnected, separate, unrelated, but in truth are all the same thing in God's spirit. On Father's Day, I love reading this article that I found several years ago. I just think it, it just captures a few things. It was written by a, uh, a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. His name is John Cass. But he writes, 
What are we going to do on Father's Day? Burn some meat? Put on a new polo shirt? Say thank you for the cologne you'll never wear? Yeah, somebody picked a day. It doesn't really matter who picked it. If you're a dad, you know the exact date. It's the day your kids were born. The day your flesh came into the world to confront you. I love that. If you're not a dad, you can't understand it. Not really. Before becoming a father, I thought it was possible to understand. But reason alone doesn't work. Perhaps it happened in a room of balloons and flowers with grandparents and siblings all around, your wife smiling, tired, and video cameras working. Perhaps you were in the hospital chapel at night, bargaining against bad news. However it turned out for you, it was the day God bended and formed you like a link in a chain, connecting you to the generations behind you and the generations hopefully to come. It is the day men stop floating and become rooted in the earth, joined to it, knowing their place in it waits for them because something of them will continue on. A baby's eyes are so big a few minutes after he arrives, so wide, and I was terribly frightened of the stare. I knew the twins couldn't really see me just then, that all they were processing was light and shadow and wonder, but it was frightening all the same. Their eyes demanded accountability. Now they're six-footers with chin beards using that body wash that advertised promise will attract all those gorgeous supermodels. Metrosexuals, right? Okay. They're good kids, but when they were little, people would tell me that they'd become teenagers someday, and it actually happened. Sometimes they tell their mother and me that we just don't understand things. We don't understand what life is like. And we agree and tell them to take out the garbage anyway and wonder what they'll look like when they're fathers and don't understand what life is like either. This is what the wrestling looks like. It's showing up to your life with intention to risk loving, risk getting hurt so badly that you will bring a child into the world and be confronted by those demanding eyes the accountability, the responsibility that comes with that, to live the decades with the child, to go through all of those phases of development, to hit the teen years and get what you get from a teenager and love through that, be willing to be hurt through that, through all of the changes, all the oscillations of life that take your breath away, to be willing to show up again and risk loving again, that is the struggle that will bring you face to face with your father who will show you that every point along the swing of that pendulum is equally sacred, equally capable of taking you exactly to the center of all God's things. That's it. Live that way. Show up that way. And you'll be able to name the place Peniel because you will have seen God's face. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our fathers. Thank you for being our first father and showing us what that means. What a perfectly balanced father looks like. Father and mother both. Mercy, justice, knowledge, wisdom, 
the mix of all of that. Help us to see more and more clearly to just stay in the center place, to hold on to the things that we don't understand and keep showing up no matter what, to keep loving no matter how much we get hurt, to know that you are always there in the center of it all. Thank you for our fathers. We ask that you would bless our fathers and our mothers and our children and our families and every group that we are in that we can see you at the center of all our relationships. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.